clap your hands and praise the Lord. Let him hear you in heaven. Lord, we give you thanks. Lord, we give you praise. Lord, we love and adore you. Today is the day to worship you. Blessed be the name of the Lord God on high. Well, good morning, everyone. And God bless you. Welcome to PCF, which means both for visitors, welcome to this gathering of PCF, and which means to members, welcome you who are PCF. Because it's worth remembering PCF is not a place, it's a people, the people of God in this place, and people on a mission, the mission of the Lord. It's our co-mission with Him, the one in which He entrusted us and for which He empowers us to spread the good news of the gospel. And you know, the good news is gentle news. The scripture says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. The wrath of the Lord had come against us because of our sin. The good news is the gentleness of God has dealt with our sin. And in that, his wrath is turned away. And we have his pleasure. We have his blessing. But we had his love even as sinners. Because while we were yet in our sin... He determined to give his son for our lives. And his son is a gentle savior. We're going to look today at gentleness, a fruit of the Holy Spirit that I am also referring to as the quality of the Christ. Will you say that? The quality of the Christ. We're going to talk about the nature of Jesus's character as Christ, the anointed Messiah, savior of his people. And we're going to see how gentleness reveals strength, how gentleness provides blessing and makes provision for prosperity in the things of the Spirit and ultimately in all things. And we're going to see how gentleness not only turns away wrath, but delivers from evil and delivers into our world, into our realm, the fullness of the kingdom, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. That sounds good to me. Does it sound good to you? Well, then let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word and by his spirit. Father God, we come to you today hungry for your word, thirsty for your righteousness, dependent upon your word and your spirit, and eager to hear from you, Lord, eager that your fruit might be borne out in us, the character and quality of your nature might be demonstrated in us. Lord, we have needs today. We trust them to you. We ask that your will would be made clear to us and you'd give us the strength to fulfill it. In Jesus' name, amen. I had an illustration planned for this morning's sermon. In fact, this sermon has been in my planning for some time. We are at part 11 of a 12-part series looking at the fruit of the Holy Spirit. We've spent the better part of this year, a year that the Lord has said to us will be a year of fruitfulness, is a year of fruitfulness, is a time of ongoing fruitfulness, talking about fruit in the Spirit. And in fact, I'll tell you how long this sermon series has been in my mind, though not as long as it's been in His, obviously. But clear back in 2015, as I sought the Lord for his will and purpose for this fellowship over the ensuing time, and he spoke to me and said, 2019, that will be a year of fruitfulness. It 
resonated quickly in my spirit that a year of fruitfulness would likely be a year in which a sermon series on the fruit of the spirit would be of the Lord. And so I made that note for myself to prayerfully consider before the Lord as the days would go on. And in that vein, uh, last year I began mapping out prayerfully the preaching calendar for this year and looking at when this series on the fruit of the Spirit would come. And therefore, I knew for a long time that today would be a day when I would be preaching on gentleness. Now, all of this may not be very interesting to you, and I don't blame you if it's not, but I mention it for this reason. The fruit of gentleness has been in my mind and in my spirit and in my prayers increasingly during this time, and especially in the last couple of weeks, and most especially this week. What I generally do if I have an extended sermon series um, mapped out like that is that I make notes for myself on sort of a rough outline of what each section of that series will be looking at so that I have an overarching idea. And of course, I do that in prayer and I do that with what I hope is a supple spirit available to however the Lord might want to lead it. But what it means is that it gives me an opportunity to kind of saturate in the ideas as I'm leading up to this time when we'll be talking together about them. And one thing that I pray and hope for, especially in the week leading up to a sermon when I'm putting the most intense labor into its preparation, is that the Lord will not only be speaking to me about the subject, but showing me ways in which I can align myself more closely with His will and purpose in that particular area. But what I have found this week, and especially in the last few days, and may I say even maybe especially in the last 24 hours, is that gentleness seemed to be increasingly absent, not only from my own heart, but from the world around me. And I don't mean that it's been so terrible. I just mean that in the last day or so, and particularly last night, I found myself agitated, distressed. And some of it was from things that may agitate or distress you, decisions of people, uh, problems that seem insoluble, issues that concern or trouble you, maybe just being on the road. Good heavens, in the last uh, 36 to 48 hours, I've made the trip basically down here and back, I don't know, like four times in two days. That's enough to get you feeling like gentleness is far removed from you, right? Uh, half an hour on the Hollywood freeway is not a gentle experience in the best of situations. As we were driving down this morning, we were even confronted with a really horrific accident, I am sorry to say, which left me feeling concerned whether we would even be here in time, and I'm um, feeling that agitation as well. I pray whoever was involved in that accident was not deeply injured. It had the look that made it seem hard to believe that could be the case, but sometimes they look much worse than they are, and I pray that was the situation there. In any case, it was a microcosm of an experience that seemed to be intensifying around me, which was as I was trying to lean into the Lord on the subject of gentleness, it seemed that the world around me was going rougher and harsher, wilder and more worrisome. In fact, throughout the night, I found myself tossing and turning. I found myself even sort of crying out in my sleep a little bit, which is very unusual for me, not anything discernible. I would just sort of awake in that fashion. I felt a kind of heaviness upon me, a kind of um, worrisome agitation. And I mention this not to trouble you, and I don't want you to worry for me, but I will welcome your prayers. I need them. 
and they benefit me, and I trust that my prayers for you do the same. But I mention it primarily because this morning as we were preparing to leave, I even said to Sister Hazel, I said, will you pray for me because I'm feeling really troubled and agitated and I recognize this is a spiritual assault. In fact, this kind of an assault can come through the hardships and hindrances and troubles and problems of life in such a way that we don't recognize it as spiritual. We just think, well, it's because, you know, my mother's in the hospital or because my uh, bill is come due and I can't pay it or because I'm arguing with my spouse and yet the spiritual assault is still a part of that. But there are times when it can come and you may not be able to align it with anything in the world around you. There may not be anything that you can point to and say is wrong, but somehow there's a deep depression weighing you down or a deep agitation. In fact, you may even feel as though the world is spinning so fast that when you come to go to sleep, you can't slow yourself down enough to catch your breath and catch your Z's, as they say. It's a spiritual assault. It is the enemy of your soul and mine, the devil, at work in the arena where he is most readily empowered, the world. The way of the world is his way. The world is harsh on gentle things because the devil is harsh and does not know or have gentleness. The world seeks to grasp what it wants and to gain what it needs through manipulation, through force, might makes right, power, through money and influence in order to gain whatever it is that the world wants that the worldly person wants, and that's the way of the devil. But it brings with it no gentleness, no meekness, no mildness, no quality of the Christ, but instead the infection of the enemy. When these times come, it's important, and this is why I share this, at the risk of perhaps oversharing with you, but I trust and hope not, I want you to be able to identify those moments in your life too. First of all, I think more than I and in, in this room encounter that. In other words, you can relate, at least some of you. And I want you to know that you're not alone. You're not the only one having those kinds of experiences and moments. The other thing is the Lord wants us all to know you are not going to lose because your victory is in him. Amen. Now, if you stand on your own, on your own two feet, in your own power, that's the way of the world digging in your heels and saying, I'm going to do it my way and nobody's going to tell me otherwise. I'm going to get what I want because otherwise someone else will take it. Dog eat dog. Get for yourself because they'll do it to you unless you do it to them. That is not a way of victory. It is the way of the world, armoring yourself up, making your neck stiff. And I'm not saying God doesn't teach us to be determined, but our determination is in him and there's a gentleness to it. And yet gentleness does not mean weakness. That's not the reality of the Lord. That's the lie of the enemy. Gentleness in Christ is strength. Gentleness does not mean fear, nor does it mean failure to stand firm. Those are lies of the enemy and foolishness of the world as well. But gentleness does mean that when we stand, what we stand upon is what God has said and what God wills. 
It's God's desire and God's will and God's word and God's spirit that will not only instill gentleness in us, but in our gentleness, he will steal us with his strength. That is, he will give us that steely confidence to be able to stand in faith upon what God will do. Even as Pastor Daniel read this morning, where do we look for help? We look to the Lord. Where does our strength come? From the Almighty on high. That's what it means when it says that we look up to the hills. We look up to the high one, the almighty one, the all-powerful one. We look to God, and in him we stand. So when those moments come, remember, a gentle response turns away wrath. In warfare against the enemy, remember the gentleness of Christ. Stand upon your faith in the Lord, and allow the peace and the gentle presence of God to remind you of who you are and of your victory in him. And then with all the authority that he has in you, you can send devils to flight. You can have victory over the darkness. As I have done in previous uh, passages of our uh, exploration in this study of the fruit of the Spirit, I want to again come to our source text for the whole series, Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, and particularly chapter 5 of that Galatian letter, where he describes fruit of the Spirit. You'll remember that though he has discussed the works of the flesh first as a, as a kind of antithesis, which that pattern, that will be very relevant to our particular subject of study today. That is comparing the things of fleshliness and worldliness with the things of God and spiritual truth, that in doing so, he used plural language for the works of the flesh or what we might call the fruits of the flesh. But when he refers to the fruit of the Spirit in the Greek, it is singular, which I have suggested, and this is purely an interpretation on my part, uh, so I recognize that this is not the only way that the passage could be perceived, but it, it indicates to me that that singularity of fruit especially in opposition to, that is in comparison with, the manifold ways of the flesh, is to say, there are many distractions and demons, but there's only one God. Yes. There are many ways in the world in which you can falter and fall into sin, but there is only one way to be good and fruitful, Amen. and it is God, and His name is Jesus. His Spirit is the only way to bear the fruit of God, which is the character of God. That's its singularity because God himself is a singularity, if you will. That is, he is a unity. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And yet in his unity, the mystery of the Trinity is expressed as well. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together as one to produce in us one fruit of the Spirit which manifests at least in ninefold ways and yet this list in Galatians is not saying this is all the fruit of the Spirit, but rather saying these are characteristics of God's nature. And each one, though it is unique and different in its deployment and its specific application in the context of your life and mine, each one is nevertheless really and truly and entirely a nature of God, a description of His character. And inasmuch as God is love, I have said that each of them are a facet of love. Not love in just a generic sense or certainly not just in the way that the world defines it, which is full of things that aren't love and lacking things that are. But in the robust 
and strong and powerful and even sometimes frightening full reality of God's love. His strength, his righteousness, his might, his gentleness, his graciousness, his peace. These are fruit of his spirit. And gentleness is a quality which is revealed in the life of Christ with particular frequency and in moments which I will suggest give us deeper understanding about what gentleness is when Paul is using it in the scripture and where it is used elsewhere. You may have noticed in your bulletin or on the screen there are three places in the Gospel of Matthew where the same word that Paul uses to convey the fruit of gentleness is used elsewhere in the scriptures to describe gentleness in action for us. The Greek word is proutes. It comes from a root, praus, which means meek or mild. So proutes is meekness or mildness. The mildness that is being described here is a mildness of disposition. That is uh, a gentleness of spirit, a gentleness of character or nature. Again, not to suggest weakness, there is a difference between meekness and weakness. But when the world sees meekness, it often receives weakness. In other words, it sees weak meekness and it perceives that meekness as being weak. However, consider Jesus Christ, who may have appeared weak to his captors, but he also said, no one takes my life from me. I willingly give it. That is meekness and that is real strength. That also is true gentleness. So, in looking at three passages in Matthew that use the same term for gentleness and describe it, I want to suggest that we can see some things that are in gentleness or that can be received through gentleness. In other words, the fruit of the fruit, what gentleness produces for those who bear it as a fruit. For one thing, there is an inheritance promised to those who reflect, who demonstrate the gentleness of God. And there is an inhabitance of gentleness. In other words, the inheritance that is promised, the land, if you will, is not just a promised piece of property, but a promised place of rest a place to abide in the vine of Christ, a place to be protected and to be fruitful. And that place is a place that we enter into because of the victory achieved through gentleness, specifically the gentleness of Christ. But that kind of Christ victory will be demonstrated through our own gentleness. The fruit of the Spirit of gentleness being manifest in us produces deliverance in our world. In fact, even today in my experience, the enemy assaulting, but the Lord through his spirit and with this particular focus on gentleness gives me a deliverance into peace and confidence and a place of victory. By the way, when the, the enemy ramps up assaults like that, you can be fairly certain it's because he recognizes that the Lord is ramping up something even greater. In other words, the enemy attacks when God is on the rise. And I believe that's a sign for us as well. So gentleness has an inheritance, an inhabitance, and a deliverance to offer us. Let's look at these. First, we'll look at Matthew 5. 
Matthew chapter 5 is the first of three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew that form one of the centerpieces of Jesus' earthly ministry, the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably the most famous example of Christian ethical teaching from the Gospels, from the mouth of Jesus himself. And it is also part and parcel of Matthew's agenda. He, as the gospel writer, has chosen events and teachings from Jesus' life and presents them in such a way so as to emphasize the connection to Israel, to the Old Testament scriptures, and to the messianic promises. He particularly wants us to see, that is Matthew, the gospel writer, one of the disciples of Jesus, by the way. He particularly wants us to see, and I... I affirm, by the way, that tradition that the book of Matthew is written by him, although it does not specifically state so. That's a matter of opinion and tradition. He wants us to see that there is a connection between particularly the word of God and the covenant of God that came to the people of God, Israel, through Moses, from God through Moses to them, and Jesus as sort of the new Moses, the successor to Moses, that is the greater prophet that even Moses prophesied about. The Sermon on the Mount is part of that. And there are a variety of ways in which we could see it, but for our purposes today, I want to focus on the particular verse that we're going to look at, perhaps one of the most familiar to us out of the Sermon on the Mount, and it comes from an opening sequence known as the Beatitudes, which comes from the Latin for the word blessed. And that word in Greek, as it is in the original text there, makurios, can sometimes be translated happy. So we maybe have this idea that when Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, that what he's saying is meek people will be happy because they're going to get property. But that would be a very superficial and limited, not necessarily unreasonable, but certainly not thorough understanding of what Jesus is really saying. First of all, we need to consider that the Beatitudes themselves present an agenda of God. There's a whole program being described in the Beatitudes, and it is this, precisely what I referred to earlier, the idea of those who live according to a worldly way that seeks their own will, according to worldly power, or those who will live submitted to God, even though it may cost them things here and now, because they believe that God will reward them. Because they believe that God is better. And so in the Beatitudes, there is a reversal of fortunes which Jesus is declaring. He's saying, here are all these categories of people that in the world you would not think they are blessed. Not only would you not think they were happy, but you'd think there's no reason to be like them. The hungry, the poor, the meek who must be weak. And those who are all fixated and caught up in religious things and have no time or energy for the more important things of the world, or so the world might think. But what Jesus says is, good for them. Congratulations to the poor. Congratulations to the meek. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness because they will be rewarded. Even though you might think that they've got nothing good, if they've got God, they've got the promise of a great inheritance. Amen. So what Jesus is saying is, don't look at the people who are rich and powerful and happy and living it up and laughing and think, I want to be like them. Look to God. And even if that means that you suffer or feel that you lack, trust him and you will be given everything. To inherit the earth is to say everything will be entrusted to you. 
Will you gain anything by grabbing it all? In this world, you can, and people do. But what God says is, not for long, not forever. But what if you just stand there trusting in the Lord? Can you really trust in that? What Jesus says is, you will be blessed. You will be congratulated. You will be the recipient of an eternal inheritance. And when he says that, Jesus is quoting scripture. His hearers would have immediately recognized that to say, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth, is a reference to the Old Testament Psalm 37. There are a variety of places in Psalm 37 where that phrase is basically echoed. Verse 9 is one of them as well. But verse 11 is probably the most specific. It literally says in the Hebrew, but the meek shall inherit the earth and enjoy peace and prosperity. Since Jesus is clearly making a quote as a part of his beatitude preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, I'd like us to look a little bit deeper at Psalm 37. And what we find is that this Davidic psalm is in fact focused on this very same theme. It is a comparison of the fate, that is the destiny, the inheritance, what will come to the wicked versus what will come to the righteous. It occurs to me, I never think about this really, but every now and then, if I gesture to one part of the room and say the wicked and the other part of the room and say the righteous, I hope no one uh, thinks there's any affiliation with that. I suppose if you did, people would be running back and forth across the room. What in fact is the wicked? You know, few, if any of us, think of ourselves as wicked. But if you go out into the world, nobody does. Right? Not many people think I'm wicked. In fact, as Jesus said, I'm sure you can justify everything you do. But in fact, wicked is not just this pejorative, derogatory slur in the scriptures. It has a specific attitude in mind. And the attitude might be a little bit more frighteningly recognizable to us. Because what the scripture says is the wicked are those who are focused and fixated on their own desires. And that, I'm afraid to say, I can relate to. And maybe you can too. The wicked are those who favor their own ways and are willing to do what they need to do to get what they want, even if that means they have to ignore or cheat or slide a little on God's ways. In recognize, this can be people who give lip service to the things of God, but the reality is what they elevate is their own will. What they're really focused on is their will. And it does produce those same kinds of anxieties and angers and agitations that may be familiar to us as well. That's the wicked. So who are the righteous? The Pollyannas who never say anything bad and never do anything bad? That's not really what righteous means in the scriptures. Righteous are those who revere God's will over their own. They are willing to submit their will, even when it's at odds with God's, to what God wants. And they, when they fail in that, recognize it and repent about that. So righteousness is really about reverence for God's will, which is the kingdom. By the way, the Sermon on the Mount is a sermon about the kingdom of God. In fact, do you know that the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, is particularly recognizable for the way that Matthew utilizes that phrase, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. There are other places where uh, uh, the, the kingdom of God is used and Matthew likes to use kingdom of heaven because it's more Jewishly reverent, not 
uh, making such direct reference to God. But make no mistake, the kingdom of heaven is the same thing as the kingdom of God, and both are about not particularly a place, although all places belong to God, and God is ruler of them all, nor even particularly a people, though ultimately God is the judge of all the earth, and all people stand before him. He's the maker of all people, and he holds the destiny of all people in his hands. But kingdom in the Old Testament and New Testament, in the ancient Near Eastern sense, kingdom was primarily about the placement of rule and reign. That is, it was about where the ruler's will dominated. Where a king had his way, that's the kingdom. In other words, when the scriptures talk about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, what they are talking about is where God's will is done. Jesus taught his disciples to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That is a classic Hebraic structure by which the second clause defines the first clause. Your kingdom come means your will be done. Wherever the will of God is revered, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is why Jesus said to people, you're not far from the kingdom of God, or you are close to the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of God is is at hand. What he was saying is, you're not far from the love of God's will, and you desire God's will, and God's will is here, and God's will is good. God's will is for gentleness to reach out to us rather than wrath, that we would be saved from wrath. He calls us to righteousness, which is to love his will. Now, if this is the case, then why is it that when the scriptures talk about the wicked, they say the wicked will fail, the the wicked will falter, and the righteous will prosper. But when we look around in the world, it looks like we see something different. We see wicked people prospering. We see people who reach out and grab, and they get what they grab for. In fact, the stronger somebody is, the more adamant and bold they are about grabbing it, the less apologetic they are about it, often the richer and more powerful and more celebrated they seem to become. And they often escape from any judgment. Whereas the righteous who are waiting meekly for the Lord to come through, wait and wait and wait. And they suffer deprivation. They are perceived as being weak. Jesus says, turn the other cheek. The scriptures say, let them spit in your face. Jesus, let them pull out his beard. Jesus, let them whip him and mock him and take him to a cross. All this persecution that comes to those who are supposedly righteous, and there's a temptation that may come to the righteous heart, which is to say, why does this happen? And to turn it into an accusation against God. Why, God, do you let this happen? So that somebody might begin to say, there is no God or God is no good, or I don't care. I'm not going to wait. I will get what I can get my own way. Now, the psalm is actually organized to refute that temptation. In other words, the psalm is saying, here is this reality. The righteous are going to receive a reward, but it might not be evident to you yet. And the wicked have a judgment coming, but you can't see it yet. But don't give in 
to that hot-headed temper. The psalm actually begins in the Hebrew with language that talks about the temperature rising. Don't get hot and bothered about this. Don't get hot under your collar. When you see the wicked prospering and the righteous failing, don't give in to the temptation to think that that means that God doesn't care or that there is no God. Rather, recognize that if you will continue to wait faithfully upon the Lord, trust Him, trust His ways. That's gentleness. Waiting patiently, trusting in that kind of meekness, there will ultimately be a reversal of fortune that you will witness. And then the righteous ones, the gentle ones, the patient ones will inherit everything and enjoy all the peace and prosperity of God. So do not fret. Don't get hot and bothered about it. Because the wicked are going to grow up fast, but they're going to wither fast. Do you remember Jesus' parable about the seed and the soil? Sometimes the seed goes in and it springs up fast, but then it withers fast. So don't be impressed with that. Trust in the Lord and keep on doing good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. If you consider that verbiage out of Psalm 37, I'd like you to hold it in comparison with this sort of summary of everything we've been talking about in these first half of the year, which is abiding in the vine of Christ and being fruitful. Trust in the Lord, abide in Him, do good, bear fruit. The way that you trust is to, first of all, reject, or at least it includes this rejection of that lie, the temptation that says, compare yourself to others who aren't doing it God's way and get jealous about it. Instead, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. What are those desires? Not just any and every gimme, gimme, gimme that you might want. That's the same way as the world, but rather the righteous desire. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be blessed because you'll be satisfied. If you seek first the kingdom of God, remember what that means. If you want God's will first, you'll get it and then you'll be blessed. And that's the inheritance. The inheritance is not just what he has, it's who he is. You'll be like him. When we see him, we'll be like him. He is a tree of life. He wants you to bear that life too. He'll bring forth your righteousness. Therefore, rest in the Lord. Will you say that? Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Don't fret because you see evil people prospering. Cease from anger. Don't get mad at those people. You don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Don't get mad at God. Don't get mad at your circumstances. Trust the Lord and recognize that way is not going to lead to life. In fact, what the psalmist is doing here is giving us a definition of gentleness. What does gentleness actually look like? What are the actions that you and I can take that cultivate the fruit of gentleness in us? How do we abide in Christ in a way that receives this fruit? We stop indignant anger. We don't give place to that personal anger that arrives out of a fleshly kind of anxiety or stress or comparativeness, especially if we see other people benefiting. We don't give a place to that temptation. We don't look for vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. In other words, God says, you be mild and I'll be the one who brings justice to bear in my time. But don't you take that upon yourself. Rather, trust in me. Evildoers will be cut off. (laughs) Like branches that don't bear fruit, they'll be cut off and thrown into the fire of wrath that comes to them. 
Just as John 15 says, just as Paul says in Galatians 5, that those who produce the works of the flesh don't have any hope in them, so also the psalmist is saying, they will be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. Therefore, to be gentle is to wait for the Lord. It's not weak, it's strong. It takes strength and faith to wait on the Lord. But part of it is the promise that you will inherit His will, that you will receive the kingdom. Yet a little while. See that in verse 10? Yet a little while. Say that to the person next to you. Yet a little while. We get tired of waiting. We get tired of hoping. We get tired of standing. Remember last week we talked about stand on the faith and having done all. What do you do? Stand and stand and stand. So you feel like you can't stand it anymore. And then the weight of the enemy comes to try and weigh you down. But in a little while, if you don't give up doing good, You'll reap a harvest of reward. You'll inherit the land that you're working in. Even as Pastor Wilson was praying today during the time of worship, I think the Lord was reminding us of of this reality. You may feel like you've been standing and waiting for a long time. Don't turn that against God. Just stay patient. In a little while, there will be a reversal of fortune. In a while, you will look for wicked and won't even be able to find them. Think about what a different world that is. When you look from east to west and you can't find one wicked. What God says is, I look all over the earth and I can't find one righteous, but there's going to be a reversal of fortune. There is a time coming when there won't be one wicked in the land, but the humble will inherit it. It will belong to them and I'll live with them. The dwelling place of God will be with his people. They will be one and there will be abundant prosperity. This is the inheritance. God himself is the promised place of rest. And it's a through line in this psalm. It shows up in verse 3, 9, 11, 18, 22, 29, 34. The whole psalm is fixated on this promise. And it's not just a promised land. It's a promised place of rest where God's rule and reign is fulfilled and unfettered. No obstacle to it. No hindrance to it. The New Testament letter to the Hebrews talks about this promised place of rest. And it takes me to this idea of the home of the holy, the place where the holy ones dwell. And when I say holy, I mean those who are willing to wait in gentleness, in mildness for the promise of the Lord to come. What he promises is, I'll give you a place. I prepare a place for you and it's a place of rest. In Matthew 11, 28 to 30, Jesus says, come to me. I'll be that place for you. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I think of myself tossing and turning through the night hours last night. And the voice of the Lord is saying, come to me. You put your weight upon me. You feel weighed down by something? Roll it on to me. I am gentle and humble. I'll receive that and I'll give you my gentle, humble, peaceful yoke. Think of it now in terms of the agricultural symbol that we're using. A yoke means you and Jesus are going to be bound together in the work of producing something fruitful. A beast of burden is one that plows a field in order for the field to produce fruit. So Jesus is saying, being yoked to me and my fruitfulness. Consider it this way. Jesus is saying, abide in me. Come be connected in me. I'm the vine. You come and be a branch in me. Put your roots down into me and I'll make you fruitful and I'll do it for you. That's the light and easy yoke. I will produce my character in you automatically. What a delightful promise. 
but it doesn't come if we're looking around at the world and saying, where is God and why don't I have that? So the author of Hebrews says, be careful, brothers and sisters, that you don't give in to that evil temptation. First of all, that you don't start getting jealous of what people in the worldly way of living have. Secondly, that you don't start going for grabbing whatever you can get. Thirdly, that you don't idolize those things that are actually demonic. And finally, that you recognize that none of that can last or produce any good fruit. But if you will encourage one another to wait upon the Lord each day, day after day, as long as there is still a day to be called today, then God will make you fruitful. But don't harden your heart. Don't let that anxiety, that anger, that sense of resentment harden your heart because then you won't be able to abide in the vine. The Hebrews author says, we've become partakers of Christ. We are branches in the vine. If we hold fast, his character will be brought out through us and our assurance will be fulfilled. But if we harden our hearts, we will break that connection. We'll turn away. And what the Lord says is, that is a way to opt out of the promise of the place of his rest. In fact, in Hebrews, he talks about how the people of Israel hardened themselves to God in the wilderness in that way, and they weren't able to enter into the place of rest. Another generation had to do it. And the way that they hardened their heart to God was they looked for what they wanted. Where's our water? Where's our food? We'll make another God. Let's boil down all these earrings and, and jewelry and make a golden calf to worship, one who will do things our way and give us what we want. That's how they hardened their hearts. But for those who were disobedient, there was no inhabitants of rest because there was no inheritance of God's will. They were not able to enter because of unbelief, which is to say they were too harsh. They didn't have God's gentle faith alive in them. We saw this last week when we were looking at faithfulness earlier in Galatians 5.22, that faithfulness is a fruitful promise and a way in which the fruit of the Spirit gets born out in us. So also, gentleness can be seen as standing firmly upon our faith and not giving up that hope. Therefore, the author of Hebrews says in chapter 4, let us draw near to confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, help in time of need is deliverance. I have more slides that I'm going to share with you, but I'm going to ask if those who are serving from the communion table would bring it forward to us at this time. Because this table is a place of rest. This table is the hope and help in time of need. This table, these elements, this bread, the body of Christ, this cup, the blood of Christ, is the help from heaven that delivers us. When Jesus entered as Savior into Jerusalem, we looked at it just recently on Palm Sunday leading up to Easter. He was walking on the road that led to this table and the cup of this new covenant. He was walking on the road that led to the cross, but he didn't walk it, did he? He rode in. And how did he ride? Matthew 21. He rode in on a donkey, even on a colt. That is, he rode in on the young a male donkey child of a female donkey. Why is that significant? Well, 
Matthew says it took place to fulfill the Old Testament promise about the Messiah, found in Zechariah 9.9. Say to the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, on a beast of burden. Jesus who said, take my yoke upon you, and referred to himself even as a beast of burden. Here again, you can see gentleness is the quality of God's kingdom because it's the quality of the Christ. It's the quality of the Savior King. A, city, a king that enters a city on a horse symbolizes and demonstrates to the people what he's coming for. He is a military conqueror. He is coming to wipe out and cut down every enemy and every other opposing authority in that place and to plunder that place for all of its resources and claim it for his own. But a king that comes in on a young donkey is an entirely different king. This is not a conqueror from outside. This is a kind, benevolent ruler coming to his own people in peace. And the peace that he promises is here for us in pieces. It's his own body broken to pieces for us. It's his own blood poured out for us. What the people wanted was the military conqueror. In fact, they so expected it it was their will that when they didn't get their will, they put God to death so that they could elevate their own design, which was a victorious ruler who would confront the Romans and defeat them, who would regain the power and privileges of Israel and put them once again within the hands of her rightful people. But what God had in mind, God's will was different. It called for meekness and gentleness. A gentle Savior who stood meekly before Pilate, virtually silent, and who went like a lamb to the slaughter, silently according to Isaiah as well. He was the Messiah, gentle and mild for you and for I. This is not to say that he does not come as a victorious warrior. He does. He will. What it is to say is that the victory was won in gentleness. It was won through sacrifice. And here is that sacrifice. We have a great high priest who not only rode through the streets of Jerusalem on the donkey, but who rose over the land on the cross, who went down into the tomb and even below the earth and now has ascended to the very right hand of the Father. We have a high priest who has passed through the heavens for us so that we could hold fast in gentleness to our confession. And our confession is this. We were sinners, but he has saved us. He was tempted in everything just like we are, but without sin. And because he died for us, the good news of God is here is grace to help in time of need. Gentleness is grace to help in time of need. I want to ask if we could adjust our liturgy today and do our communion slightly differently than we do typically. I will uh, remind you that our communion table is the Lord's. The Lord has made it open to all. All are welcome to receive of it. But as many as receive should receive recognizing the cost. The cost to him who gave his life for us and the cost he is asking for from us, which is that we would give our lives to him, that we would welcome his will above our own. When we do that and receive these elements, there is blessing that comes to us. 
and blessed are you who receive it. So as these elements come, I'm going to ask that you would go ahead and receive the element and take it. And I thought I was missing a plate. It was like the fishes and loaves. It just multiplied in front of my eyes. This is going to come to you. Simply take of the bread and the blood, but as you do on your own, do it prayerfully. Consider the gentleness of God and consider his promise to you today and declare that promise as you receive of his body. We're going to worship. Let your worship be also the receiving of the body and blood of Christ for you. Amen. You deserve the glory and And the honor. Lord, we lift our hands and worship as we live your holy name, you deserve the glory and the honor. Lord, I lift my hands in worship as we live your holy name. For you are great, do your miracles so great. There is no one else like For you are great, do your miracles so great, there is no one else like you, there is no one else like you. You deserve the glory and the honor. Lord, we live my hands to worship as we live your holy name. Do we serve the glory and the honor? Lord, we live for hands to worship as we live your holy name. For you are great. Do you miracles so great? There is no one else like you. There is no one else like you. For you are great. You do miracles so great. There is no one else like you. There is no one else like you. For you are great. Do you miracles so great? There is no one else like you. There is no one else like you. For you are great. Do you miracles so great? There is no one else like you. There is no one else like you. If you have not already, please receive of the elements and offer your prayers to the Lord. Hallelujah. We share in this one body, and in that he makes us one body.
And yet there is also a very personal, intimate, and mysterious moment to be had at this communion table. It is our prayer that the gentleness of God, which is his very nature and quality, has entered into each one of you and me today, afresh and anew, or even if for the first time. And our assurance of that is we have eaten of his flesh, we have drunk of his blood, and he said that those who did that would receive of him and have their fullness in him. So may the fullness of his gentleness, the fullness of his faith, and the fullness of his joy be with you. Amen.